Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us here to look into your word and learn from you. And Father, though this can be a hard doctrine for many, Lord, I pray that you would just give us understanding this evening and cause us to receive it from your word. Thank you for revealing it to us and blessing us with so much, Lord. In the name of Christ. So, as some, as some of y'all know, I might as well just do some review. Um, we're going over the Doctors of Grace. The five points of, if you want to call it five points of Calvinism, I, I prefer to just call it the Doctrines of Grace. We've already seen the first two points. If you remember, the acronym is TULIP. So you had total depravity was the first point that we looked at, that man is spiritually dead, born into this world, a child of wrath, cannot do good, does not seek God, can't come to Christ, unable to un understand spiritual things. That's how man comes into this world. Um, then we saw unconditional election is the fact that God, before the foundation of the world, chose whom he would save. And, you know, some will say that's not fair, but the reality is if God wouldn't have chosen to save some, all would go to hell because we're all spiritually dead. Now this third point, like I mentioned even I think last time, is the sticking point for a lot of people, you know. Some people are like, oh, uh, I would believe in uh, total depravity, unconditional election, but we get to limited atonement. Um, I'm not going to hold on to that. Um, there's actually many people that would call themselves four-point Calvinists, and when typically when they say they're a four-point Calvinist, that that's, this is the point that they don't hold to. I call them Christmas Calvinists because there's no L. Y'all get that? No L. <laughs> but that's the point we're going to be looking at today, limited atonement. Um, so I, I have two points here. The first point is limited atonement, or what I like to call particular atonement. Um, this doctrine here, um, I actually like to just call it the atonement, since that's what it is, or actual atonement. Because atonement was either really an atonement or it wasn't, right? He, Christ, when he atoned, he either really atoned for sin or he didn't. Um, if it was really an atonement, then whoever was in scope was atoned for. <clears throat> Not potentially atoned for, but actually atoned for. And this could be a good way of differentiating between these two doctrines. You know, the monergist or the Calvinist, if you want to say, believes in what's called actual atonement. We believe in particular redemption or particular atonement. That Christ actually did atone for the, all the sins of all the ones that the Father chose to save. We believe in an actual atonement. And the synergist believes in a potential or hypothetical atonement. That Christ potentially atoned for all of your sins. So the question is, what does atonement mean, though, right? Right? That's that's we talk about atonement, what does it mean? Well, in the New Testament, the word atonement is only used one time. 
the word itself. The idea is there throughout the New Testament. The word's used 80 times in the Old Testament. So it's not as though we're just grasping at straws here. It's not, not like there's nothing for us to, to, to learn from this. The word means an exchange. It means to cover. It means to, or reconciliation. The idea of atonement involves the truths of propitiation and expiation. Now those are big words probably, but they're Christian words. They're, they're part of our language. Um, the idea of atonement involves the truths of propitiation and expiation. What is expiation? It is taking away our sins. It's expiation. That's where we get exit from, right? It's to take away our sins. Propitiation is taking away God's wrath so He looks upon us in mercy. He's pro. He's for us now. Because our sins have been taken away. The wrath has been appeased by Christ. And now the Father can look at us in love and mercy. So real atonement is only found through expiation and propitiation. You know, this is in my notes, but I just popped in my head because... Probably 20 years ago, I went to a synagogue. Um, I was reformed, but I went to a synagogue to, to, to uh, kind of just see how, how they did stuff. So I went in there and I sat, I sat in the back. What's funny is I was reformed Baptist and I sat in the back and the people that came in, they were like, you don't have to sit in the back. We're not Baptists. <laughs> you know, I actually am, but... Um, and I didn't know it, I went there on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And after the service took place, I walked up to the rabbi and started talking to him. And I just asked him, I started, you know, I quoted to him some, some of the Hebrew writings too, apart from the Old Testament. But even in all of that, it was there. there is no satisfaction, no... Um, appeasement, no atonement without the shedding of blood. And I asked him, I said, what, what, what do you guys do? This is Yom Kippur, right? This is a day of atonement, but I didn't see any blood shedding. And he said, well, people sacrifice vegetables and fruits and stuff. And I was like, well, it says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So you're still in your sins. But anyway, so I don't know why I went on all that, but Real atonement is only found through expiation, which is the taking away of sins, and propitiation, which is the wrath of God being appeased on our behalf. So it can't be done through sacrificing fruits and vegetables. We saw that before in the Old Testament, right? Cain brought forth his vegetables. That was before the Levitical law. But what did Abel bring forth? Blood, what God commanded. So, in layman's terms here, only by the sacrificial death of Christ can real atonement be made and the wrath of God can be appeased. And this is what we argue Christ did. He didn't just potentially atone. He really atoned. He really took away our sins and appeased the wrath of the Father completely and perfectly. That's the blessing of being in Christ, right? To know that every single sin that I've ever done or will ever do is completely paid for. 
all of it. And the wrath of God, he has no wrath for me. He says in Romans 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of our sins have already been taken, taken care of. They've been expiated. And he was our propitiation. He was the mercy seat. So now the question is, did he do that for everybody? Or simply some? This is why people have a problem with this doctrine. But that's really your only options when you say that the atonement actually appeased God's wrath. Here are your only options. You must either argue that God in the atonement was reconciling every person to himself, or that God was reconciling some people to himself. So your, your options, logically speaking, is universalism or Calvinism. If atonement is actually an atonement. If atonement is actually a propitiation. Or to put it like this, if atonement happens, propitiation happens. Which means the wrath of God has been appeased. If atonement actually happened, if Christ's death actually appeased God's wrath... Or did it not? So if it is true, and we hold that it is, then your options are that God made atonement for some or all. And either way, either way you go, the ones that are atoned for will be saved. Right? If all their sins are paid for. To use the argument of John Owen, he says, not exactly because... I don't have it in my notes or anything, but he says, you know, if Christ paid for all of our sins, but then you say, well, not unbelief, or well, is unbelief sin? If it is sin, Christ paid for it. Did he pay for your unbelief too? I believe so. It's a sin. He paid for my unbelief as well. So the ones that are atoned for will be saved. Let's look, look at some verses though, so you can not to listen to me so much. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. Y'all know Isaiah 53. It's the great chapter speaking about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 and verse 11. It says, speaking of Jesus, He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide a portion with the great, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He hath poured out His soul unto death, and He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Turn with me now to Matthew 26. In verse 28.
Matthew 26, 28. Now this is when Christ is instituting the, the Lord's Supper. He says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Does it sound not just like Isaiah 53 says? That in Isaiah 53 it says, Shall my righteous servant justify many? And he says, And he bear the sin of many. And here it says, for which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now look up to John chapter 10. John 10 verse 11. Jesus speaking here, He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives His life for the sheep. Y'all know the sheep and goats, right? He says, I give my life for the sheep. Look down at verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know, so know I the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. Not the goats. Turn up to Acts chapter 20. This is a very good verse that you would should have in your arsenal here for if you run into somebody who denies the deity of Christ. Acts 20 and verse 28. It says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. What did, was purchased with His own blood? The church. Not everybody. The church. And what, why I say this is a good verse for to, to bring out if somebody denies the deity of Christ because whose blood does it say purchase the church? It says God's. The church of God which He purchased with His own blood. God purchased the church with His own blood. He purchased the sheep. He is the good shepherd and laid down his life for the sheep. He says, I will bear the sins of many. Now there's obviously there's many more verses we can go to, but you see the, you see the picture there. You know Matthew 1 and verse uh, 21, it says, uh, when they, before the birth of Jesus, right, that she, she, Mary should name him Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Not all people. His people. The same thing. His sheep, His people. That's who He will save. If it's an actual atonement, He will actually save His people. And these verses make sense. If it's an actual atonement and it's for everyone, then what? Everyone is saved, right? If it's an actual atonement, if propitiation actually happened, and expiation actually happened for every single person that's ever lived then God has no wrath left. Because that's what propitiation means. It means He took away the wrath of God. There's no wrath left for anybody if Christ's blood was spilled for everybody. But we do know that's the logical conclusion to it. 
Most people don't hold to the logical conclusion to it, right? They understand that that is heresy to say that every single person that's ever lived will be saved. That's called universalism, right? We, we reject that as Christians because there is a place called hell, which isn't in my notes, but that's another reason why this death of Christ for everybody makes no sense because then you have Jesus paying for sins that people were going to hell and paying for as well. The question I often like to ask is, did Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, was he paying for the sins of Pharaoh, who was already in hell? He was already in hell. Why would Jesus pay for his sins? We understand that universalism is outside of Orthodox Christianity, but it's actually a better argument than what the most synergists would make. From the text. It's a better argument from the text if you're going to be logical. The typical evangelical Christian in America would say, you know, Christ died for everybody, but then you'd go to verses that, and you'd show them the illogical sense in that, and they would just deny it. They argue that Christ atoned, but you, mo you must accept it, right? Christ atoned for all your sins, but you just must accept it. You must accept Jesus in your life. You must believe for the atonement to be real. You, by your free will, make the atonement effectual. We know this is false for a couple reasons. First, this makes man sovereign over salvation. It's man and his free will that dictates salvation at that point. And we know, as Jonah, remember, what did Jonah say? Salvation is of the Lord. And we know from Romans chapter 9, as we went through in our church too, that God will have mercy on whom He'll have mercy, and He'll harden whom He will harden. It says in the book of James, it says, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth. It's of His own will that He's made us alive. Not our will. And the second reason that's false, that man by his free will makes the atonement effectual is total depravity. Man is dead. Man has no free will. He's dead. He's a slave to sin. But being a slave is the opposite of being free. I think we understand this as Americans, right? Dead men can't simply make themselves alive. We know this. You can't you you walk to the graveyard right now, nobody in that graveyard is going to get up and walk out of there. They can't. Christ didn't come and die for dead men and just hope and pray that someone would believe and be saved. That's not what happens. He, remember in Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and what? Be satisfied. There was no way he would be disappointed in the reward of his suffering. He died for a certain number, and those ones He died for would be saved. And it's the exact same one that the Father chose from eternity past. You see somewhat the flow of these doctrines? Unconditional election before limited atonement. God the Father elects from eternity past. God the Son died for the elect in time. And God the, the, the Spirit regenerates and gives faith and repentance to the one the Father chose and the Son died for. That's a truth that shows the fault of those that claim to be four-point Calvinists. 
their problem is they have a disagreement and different wills within the Trinity, right? If God the Father chose from eternity past only these certain ones to be saved, and God the Spirit is only going to awaken and regenerate those ones, why would Christ die for everybody? It would be a disagreement within the Trinity. We can't have that. It would be different wills within the Trinity. God the Father only wills for certain ones to be saved. God the Spirit is only wills that certain ones be saved. But God the Son wills that everybody be saved, right? No. That's not how our God works. It says, Job says, whatsoever his soul desires, that is what he does. We move on to our next point here. It's just the atonement from the old, from our atonement of old. Let me bring this out that nobody seems to have a problem with. I never hear a synergist, a dispensational, arguing against this truth. In the Old Testament, the, the high priest made atonement for who? Do y'all know? The high priest in Israel, who did he make atonement for? The Israelites. Did he make atonement for Egypt? No. Did he make atonement for the Edomites? Or the Philistines? No. He made atonement only for Israel. Only one people group was atoned for. Only one nation. And if you remember, I brought out, the Scriptures teach us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So there must be shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. But there was no shedding of blood for all nations in the Old Testament, apart from Israel. Nobody has a problem with that, do they? All the rest of the nation, all the rest of the world was left to perish without an atonement for their sins. And not only that, but God called, and most would agree, that the Jews in the Old Testament, what, what do people call them? God's chosen people, right? Nobody has a problem with saying, you know, Israel's God's chosen people, but then all of a sudden you say, well, that actually applies to believers there, and it still applies to believers today, that those within the church are God's chosen people, and then they have a problem. And we can still argue that God only makes atonement for one nation. But that nation is the church. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I'm talking about the church. We're a holy nation. It's a holy nation. It's a kingdom. It's made up of many nations, though. That's what the church is, and that's who Christ died for. Remember the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. So now we come to the New Testament, and Jesus is our high priest, right? And He made atonement for His people, for the church, for the elect. You are a chosen generation. You are a holy nation. And He made atonement just for you as the church, as the elect ones of God. Also, let me give you another picture from the Old Testament that we're familiar with. The Passover. The first Passover, to be specific. In the first Passover, who was made atonement for? 
I mean, did God send a messenger to Pharaoh and tell him you need to slaughter a lamb and put some blood on your doorpost or I'm going to slaughter your firstborn? He did not do that, did he? Only the Israelites. Again. All the rest he was going to kill. All those in Egypt, the firstborn in Egypt, all of them were going to die unless you have blood on the doorpost. And the only people that were warned about that was the Israelites. Put blood on your doorpost and I'll pass over and not kill your firstborn. Was that unjust with God? God, that has to be unjust, right? God forbid we'd ever think that. And salvation was always like this. And now we get to the problem and people have... We get to the New Testament and people have a problem with it, right? But once again, if it's actually an atonement, if He actually atoned for your sins, they are atoned for, and God has no wrath left for you. If He was a propitiation for your sins, then the wrath of God has been appeased, and there's no condemnation left for you. So the question is asked often, how do I know if Christ died for me then? And the answer is simple. Believe the gospel. If He's atoned for you, the Father has chosen you, and the Spirit will awaken you into new life in Him. And you will believe the gospel. In our next meeting, we're going to see a little a look into that last statement that spirit will bring new life to you when we look at what's called irresistible grace and it's that grace that's given by God to his elect to make them alive to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins you all have any questions or